There we go. That's a little better. I need to hear my voice. So Great to have you here with us this morning. A beautiful day. God has blessed us with outside, and thanks for choosing to share part of your day with us in our time this morning. So on the stage with me is our new staff that we wanted to introduce you to that have joined us over the last couple months, and just to give you a chance to get to know them and put some names and faces uh, together with them. So we'll start all the way at the end with Jen Van Dahlen, who joined our team back in April. So Jen is wife of Tim uh, Van Dahlen, who oversees our family ministry. So uh, uh, Jen, just to get us uh, started, um, as you step into this role, uh, providing the admin support for our worship and care and family ministry, um, how do you feel like you can uh, bring some of your skills and ability to have an impact in this role? Um, so I, like John said, I'm overseeing seeing the family ministry and the worship and care part um, of it just as the admin and um, keeping those two guys orderly. Um, but as far as like an impact, I don't know if I always know every day um, what that may be, um, but I'm just excited that um, as I interact with those of you who are involved in family ministry, um, those of you who are on our care team, those of you in the worship team, um, I'm just excited about that interaction that I can have with all of you. Um, and sometimes I don't know day-to-day what that's going to look like, um, the impact as the people walk into the office, um, the people that I work with here in the office. Um, so I'm just excited, too, to see where God's going to end up um, leading me in, um, in, in this role um, in the future, too. Great. And next to her is uh, Annika, uh, Annika Nauman. She Annika grew up here at CCC and um, has recently stepped into our office manager role as a summer intern. So, Annika, can you tell everybody just first of all what, what you're doing with your life, and then um, I'll ask you a question related to your new role here. Okay, so I'm currently working towards a bachelor's degree at Kutztown University with a major in accounting and business administration. So as you step into this role in our office, what is one of your current strengths that you feel like you can bring to the role? Um, I think just my general willingness to learn. Um, I mentioned first service how I don't even know how many times I've been asked, do you know how to do this yet? And I say, no, but I can try. So (laughs) that's something that's been helpful this summer. Yeah, and she does. She jumps in with both feet and tackles it and sometimes tells me later, and that works out well too. And uh, but I, uh, so it's exciting. We're excited to have Jen and Annika handling uh, just different administrative roles and interacting with many of you uh, throughout the week. And next to Annika is my daughter, Alicia. So um, Alicia is stepping into the role of our kids ministry director. So she's transitioning from full-time teacher to part-time teacher. So Alicia, can you tell us a little bit about what led you to make that transition from that role to uh, shifting to this new role? Well, I've been teaching for the last three years, mostly focused on middle school. Um, And while I've enjoyed that, I've come to realize uh, that my true passion really lies with children's ministry and serving here in the church. So I'm really excited this next year to be able to continue teaching, but to increase my involvement um, here in the children's ministry. She corrected me this week. She said, I've actually been serving dad. I said, you've been doing this for a couple years now. She said, well, I actually started when I was in seventh grade, so it's been 14 years. So she clearly has a passion for that. So um, Alicia, what, um, what are some of the priorities you see as you step into, for you as you step into this new role? A big part of my role is to support the ministry leaders that we already have. And we have some great ministry leaders that oversee Mogoland, Studio 252, and Route 56. So to provide any support that they need, any resources they need, as well as training for our current volunteers and helping new volunteers get started and get plugged in are some of the main elements of my role. 
Well, we are excited to have you uh, on board and uh, as part of our team. And then next to me is uh, Roddy Hanna, Roddy and his wife Amy, who's sitting down here to, to our left, to your right. Um, put your hand up, Amy, so you can see. This is Amy down here and uh, their kids. Uh, we moved to, unloaded a truck full of their possessions yesterday, and uh, the rest of them will be coming in two weeks. So Roddy's going to be stepping into the role of uh, of our adult ministry pastors, our adult ministry pastor, and that will be primarily overseeing our small groups, um, but also providing the uh, staff oversight to our first impressions and next step areas of ministry as well. So I've asked Roddy to share with us. Roddy comes to us uh, being in an academic environment for a number of years. So I've asked Roddy to share with us uh, what God did in his heart uh, for he and his wife to move from that environment to a local church setting. Can you share that with us, Roddy? Uh, like John was mentioning, my wife and I, we served for 18 years up in northeast Pennsylvania at Baptist Bible College, Summit University, Clark Summit University. It's pretty neat. I can work at three different places and be at the same place. Uh, so we served up there for 18 years. One of the highlights of our service together, the times that we got to work together uh, particularly, would have been our time in the men's residence halls. We served nine years together in a guy's dorm, which means we had 56 guys that lived with us. Uh, for nine years straight, and uh, a year in a guy's dorm is like a dog year. Uh, so uh, I bring a lot of experience. So that was a great opportunity for us, but what we loved about that was just being able to do that together. And as I progressed through the school, uh, one of the things that happened is I got pulled further and further away from working with people and uh, really got placed in a position of uh, managing and organizing and facilitating from a very high level uh, looking down, which I did not enjoy. Uh, so we're really looking forward to being able to step back into the uh, rubbing shoulders with people. Uh, so that's what's really led us this direction. Of course, God really has been leading in our lives over the past few years uh, towards pastoral ministry as well. So as you think about stepping this new role, what, what excites you about the opportunities that you see here at CCC? So this has been neat. I've been reflecting here uh, since I answered the first service, but I've been introducing myself to a lot of people as they walk in the door. And uh, it's amazing uh, how many people have only been here for four or five months? Uh, this is a church in transition and growth, and that excites me. And the reason that this place is growing is because of what's happening here. Uh, it's because of the, the hospitality that you demonstrate, the friendliness that you demonstrate, and that excites us. We're really, I'm really excited to get to know you. Uh, I have a lot of names to memorize, but what I have noticed is that pretty much you're either a Tim or... John. John, yeah, and there's a couple Bobs. I've only met one Merlin, so, you know, so that's, that's what I'm realizing as we've been here, uh, but, so I'll probably call you Tim or Bob, and we'll be good. Well, we are excited to have Roddy and his family uh, here with us this weekend, and uh, they'll all be with us uh, as they finish that transition here in a couple weeks, so would you just join me, the, and uh, thank God for the team that's here, so thanks, guys. So as you uh, come into our office, when you stop by, if you'd have a chance to do that during the week, there's a lot of people in that little tiny space, and uh, Randy's doing a great job trying to come up with a plan to make it work for all of us in that space. Uh, but we're excited about the staff that God has blessed us with, and uh, we're excited about the opportunities they will have to, to bless and serve you, help you in your faith journey, help deepen your love for Christ, um, and um, so that you can share that love in the circles of influence 
that God has placed you in, and um, each one of you have many of those. And so we look forward to uh, this next season in our church life as we're entering um, into that and the team that God has brought together to serve with us. A few years ago, my daughter Alicia, she um, was in finishing up college, and one of the things she had to do in college was she had to uh, finish up a gym class. And my daughter does not like gym, has never liked gym, but she had to get this one more gym credit done. She said, Dad, I think I'm going to do an online gym class during the summer. I'm like, how are you going to do an online gym class? You know, you're going to do aerobics in front of the screen or what? You know, so, but she said, no, what I have to do is I have to come up with a plan, and then I have to accomplish the plan and just figure that out. And I said, well, I've, I've worked with training programs, created training programs and followed them. And so we talked together about what that might look like. She came up with a plan and she said the end result of that was she's going to run a five-mile race in, um, uh, in the area. And so we found one that would work in our schedules. Um, it was in the early part of July over in Shillington. And so she, uh, she would, went through her training process, and most of the time when she would run, it would be in the evenings when things were a little cooler. That's when she preferred to go out and run. And so she got all of her training done. We were ready for the race. And as you know, around here, the first week of July can generally be kind of warm and a little bit humid. So it was 95 degrees that day and 100% humidity that day. And she had been training in the evening. Well, this race was at 9.30. And uh, anybody that knows anything about running is the earlier when it's cooler, the better. Most road races start around 8 o'clock, 8.30. You don't want to be starting something later you know, later than that. And so we got out into the race, and the first mile seemed to go pretty well. She was running on pace on her time that she wanted to hit. And about the mile and a half, I started noticing a change just in her demeanor in terms of her head and her arms. And, um, um, and then she started feeling lightheaded, so I was like, oh, this is not a good sign. And then so we slowed down. We started walking her, walking. I got some water. I dumped some water on her. We were, you know, trying to get to the next water station. And she started saying to me, Dad, I don't know if I'm going to make it. I don't know if I'm going to make it. And um, I said, Alicia, you have to make it. You've got to pass this class to be able to graduate. You know, you have to be able to do this. And so, um, and so I kept trying to encourage her and cheer on. But there was a big question in her mind of was she going to be able to make it? And I recognized in that experience the power of my presence with her and the power of my words to her in that moment in time. And I don't know if you've experienced that, if you've ever had a high school coach, you know, if you ever had a coach of a team when you, you didn't know if you could go on, you didn't know if you could finish the race, you didn't know if your team could um, engineer a comeback, and your coach says, I believe in you, I think you can do this, I believe in you, and I think you can do this, and I'm going to be right here with you every step of the way. And maybe you've had a, a setting like that in a job situation where you've gone to your boss and said, I don't think I can do this. I've never done it before. It's out of my league. And the boss has said, I've been there before. I know how to get this done. I'll be there with you. Have you ever had that experience? Maybe you've had a parent um, or an aunt and uncle or grandparent or coach who has come alongside you in a difficult time in life when you weren't sure how to navigate the struggles or challenges you were facing. And they said to you, I will be with you. Maybe you had a close trusted friend who you're going through a personal crisis and you've shared with them something that you've not shared with anybody else in your life and you said, I don't know how I'm going to navigate this. I don't know how I'm going to fix this. I don't know how I'm going to get through this. And they've said those words. They said, I will be with you. There's something about the power of presence in our lives that makes things that seem to be impossible become possible. And this morning we're going to look at the story of a man in the Bible who faced an impossible situation 
And he had no idea how he was going to navigate that. But once he realized that God was going to be with him, that God's presence was with him, the impossible became possible. The impossible became possible. If you haven't been here with us this summer, we, our series is in the book of Judges, and our series is entitled Never Forget. Never Forget. Because one of the things that we as a church don't want to do is we don't want to forget where God has brought us and forget what God has brought us to at this point in time. And the people of Israel, they had gone through this experience where God had brought them out of the land of Egypt. He had taken them through the Red Sea. They wandered around for 40 years in the wilderness, but their shoes didn't wear out. Their clothes didn't wear out. They had food at their doorstep every day. And now they get into the promised land, and God defeats all of their enemies and gives them houses they didn't build and vineyards they didn't plant and fields that they didn't sow. And he says, it's all yours. And then he says, and don't forget the Lord your God. Unfortunately, the book of Judges is a story of people who forgot. It's a story of people who forgot. And people who forgot about all the things that God had done, forgot about God's goodness and his faithfulness, forgot that if they would follow him, he would lead them, and they decided they were going to go their own way. And for us as a church community, we have decided that we want to look at this book because we don't want to forget where God has brought us from. We don't want to forget what God has done here. We've been here in this location about two years, and and, um, you know, Roddy and I were standing outside just talking a little bit. He's asking me some questions about the, the property and the land, how all this materialized. And I was telling him some of the stories. And um, we we're just reminded about God's goodness and faithfulness in the lives of our church and the decisions of our leadership and our membership and the sacrifice of many of you physically and financially to make this place become a reality that we can experience on a week-in and week-out basis. And so for us as a church, we wanted to walk back into these stories and look at these stories as a way to help us not forget. If you haven't been here with us this summer, you can go to our website, cocalico.church, and you can catch up on any of the messages um, that you might have missed. For the last two weeks, Tim and myself, um, Tim Nice and myself, we looked at the story of Deborah and Barak. And the story of Deborah and Barak, and, and, and I got the... I got the tough guy perspective. Tim got the poetic perspective So uh, last week, but he did a great job with that, helping us look at this amazing story of how God showed up using uh, Deborah initially and then Barak. And so what happened at the end of that story is at the end of chapter 5, there in Judges chapter, Judges chapter 5, you have your Bibles if you want to turn there. Actually, we're going to be in Judges chapter 6 is where we're going to be. Judges chapter 6. And that's page 194 in the Bibles in front of you, Judges chapter 6. Um, but the end of Judges chapter 5, it says that the land had rest for 40 years. The land had rest for 40 years. And what would happen in the story of the judges, it'll come up here, this, the, it'll come up here this slide, the people would rebel, God would be angry, there would be oppression by enemies, they would cry out, salvation, peace. And so they were in a, they were in a window of peace. The land was at rest. It was calm. Um, and I was thinking about the significance of this. I was reading an article this morning about uh, the U.S.-led coalition, their fight to try to remove ISIS from Mosul, and I was thinking how rare this land, that's the land this was happening in, how rare that land has known peace. And they knew peace for 40 years, long period of time, long period of time. But in chapter 6, verse 1, it says, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of of the Midianites. So we go back to that circle. Oh, let me go find the circle. There's a circle. We go to that circle. So what happened is somewhere along the way, Deborah and Barak, 
who functioned in this role as a judge, they both passed away. We don't know when, we don't know how, but they passed away. And so what took place then is the people did evil, and then there was oppression by their enemies. And this time it's a group called the Midianites. The Midianites. And the next verse goes on to tell us um, what happens. There we go, verse 2. It says, Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepped shelters for themselves in mountains, clefts, caves, and strongholds. Very similar to what happened before with Deborah and Barak. Wherever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and Amalekites and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. And so what was happening is every time they would plant their crops, the people would, they would be invaded, and after they were invaded, they ruined all their crops. Ruined all their crops. I mean, just when the crop was about ready to be harvested, they would come in. And likely steal it. It's what they would do. Steal it. And so all the hard work, all the effort was lost. And not only that, they also took their livestock as well. So they were left without any food, without any way to provide for themselves. It goes on to describe in verse 6, it says, They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels, and they invaded the land to, they ravaged the land, invaded the land to ravage it. How many of you have been in a swarm of locusts? Anybody here been in a swarm of locusts? Nobody been in a swarm of locusts? Somebody's stretching back there. I don't think he was in a swarm of locusts. But um, this is what a swarm of locusts looks like. I mean, it is everywhere, everywhere. You can't see where the locusts end. And that's literally what they were saying. They could not see the end of the hordes that were invading their land. Sometimes the locust is so thick you can't even see the sun. And that was the analogy that the writer used to describe what was taking place. They just overwhelmed them, overwhelmed them. He goes on to describe their situation. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help when the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian. So if you remember that circle, what's happened is oppression by the enemy, and now they're crying out to God. They're asking God for help. But as I sat with this and thought about this, they, they're asking God for help, but they really aren't changing really aren't changing. And I compare it to the difference between someone who expresses regret and someone who repents. You say, what's the difference between that, John? Well, when someone expresses regret, they kind of feel sorry that they basically got caught. You know, they feel bad about the situation. But with someone who repents says, this is what I did. I take responsibility. Will you forgive me? There's no repentance ever mentioned in this part of the story. I think they felt regret, but I don't think they felt a sense of repentance. So what did God do? Normally in the story, this is where God sends a judge. So like, who's the next judge that's going to be sent? God doesn't do that. He sends them a prophet. He sends them a prophet. Remember, a prophet was a spokesperson for God. It was a person that God spoke to, said, this is what you need to hear. And so what did God say they needed to hear? He said, this is what the Lord said. I brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. And all I said to you is, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites. But you did not listen to me. What did the prophet say? The prophet said, I brought you out. I rescued you. I delivered you. I drove them out. I gave them your land. And what did God ask the people to do? All God said is, don't worship any other gods. This is incredibly unique in that culture because every other culture in that ancient Middle East, they worshiped multiple gods. The God of the Israelites was the only God who said, one God and only one, 
None others. The only one that asked for exclusivity was the God of the Israelites. Um, and the people were not willing to do it. And God said, all I ask you to do after I did all these things is just to do this one thing. As I thought about it, I thought it's a little bit like a parent who asks their child to clean up their mess in their room, you know. And the child gives them grief about cleaning up. They won't clean up the mess. And I'm sure, parents, there's been a few times you've thought to yourself, you know, I brought you into this world, you know. I put clothes on your body. I make sure you have food in your stomach. I put a roof over your head. I'll make sure you're educated. All I'm asking you to do is just this one thing. And you can't do that one thing. And that's a little bit what it seems like God was saying to the people of Israel. I did this, and I did this, and I did this. And all I'm asking you, just worship me. Just worship me. And they were not able to do that. In spite of, the people's, in spite of God's efforts to reach out to the people, they did not respond. Because the end of that verse says what? Did it say they listened to God? No. It says they did not listen to God. And, you know, I kind of found myself wondering, when is God going to get tired of this? When is God going to get tired of this? Um, you know, we talk about in relationships, the crazy circle, you know, this happens, this happens, this happens, and, it, and, and this just happens over and over and over and over again. Well, God sent a prophet, and that did not seem to work, speaking through a person. So God chose to do something else. God sent an angel, the angel of the Lord, came and sat down under the oak in Orpha that belonged to Joash the Abizrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Who's the angel of the Lord? There's a lot of speculation. This phrase shows up throughout the Bible. The angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord. Some have suggested that the angel of the Lord is, is Jesus himself in the form of an angel before he was actually born on this earth. There's a variety of reasons that it's some type of, of God in the flesh showing up to man. We don't really know what it is. What we do know is messenger, angels are messengers, and so we're just going to call him God's messenger. God's messenger. The prophet is a man or a woman who speaks for God. The angel of the Lord, this is a messenger from God. From God. And so the angel shows up. And as the angel shows up, he shows up in the house of Joash. And this is where we meet Gideon. And what Gideon was doing was he was threshing wheat. Um, anybody thresh wheat this week? I don't think anybody threshed wheat. Nobody did any wheat threshing. Okay, I didn't think so. I'm um, just checking. Never know in Lancaster County. But um, So uh, they were threshing wheat. So how do you thresh wheat? Well, what you do with you thresh wheat is you actually cut the wheat down, and then you beat the wheat, and then you got this pile. And what you have to do is you've got to throw, the, throw it up in the air, and the wind, the breeze comes through, and it blows the light stuff called the chaff. It blows that away, and the stuff that sinks down, that's the good stuff. So you need to be in an open area, right? And you need to have some air moving, and you're throwing it up, and then that's how you would get the wheat, that you would actually break that up and then cook with that. That's what they would do. And so that's how they would thresh. But, jo but Gideon wasn't threshing out in the open field. Gideon was threshing in a wine press, in a hole in the ground. Now, if you say, how in the world did he do that? I really don't know how he did it either. But I guess he's down in the hole, and every once in a while, whoop, you see something come up and then drops down, you know. But it, it was his attempt to hide from the Midianites, because every time he would, they would show up with crops, what would the Midianites do? They would come in, and they would steal it, destroy it, whatever they did, just to discourage the people of Israel. So this is what Gideon's doing. He's hiding from the enemy, okay? So that's your first picture of Gideon, someone who's hiding from the enemy. So as the angel of the Lord shows up, look what the angel of the Lord then says 
to Gideon. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Um, now, this is not Thor he's talking to. This is Gideon, you know. It's not one of the Avengers. This is Gideon. And he's probably thinking, who said that to... They weren't talking to me, were they? Um, but notice Gideon's response in the next verse. Pardon me, my Lord. He's respectful. But if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Why has all this happened to us? As you read those words, there's some assumptions that Gideon has, isn't there? There's an assumption that Gideon has. Gideon assumes that if God was with them, they would have no what? They would have no what? Trouble, right? They would have no problems. God, you're not with us. That's why all of this has happened. That's why all of this has happened. Um, and this is not something that just people say today, but this is something people said a long, long time ago. You know, it's not uncommon for me to have conversations with someone who doesn't want anything to do with God or, or faith or the church. And as I ask them a little bit more about their story, about their life, often something has happened to them where they expected God to make their problems go away, and he didn't. And they were done with God. They were done with God. Gideon had that belief system. He said, God, if you would have been here, if you would have fixed this, if you would have healed them, if you would have saved them, if you would have just provided some resources, this would have never happened. He goes on to say, where are all these, his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt, but now the Lord has what? Abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. Um, man, Gideon knew the stories about the, you know, about the Red Sea and God providing and coming in the land. He knew all the stories. He said, I don't know where that God is, but he's not here right now. God is not with me. God is not with us. You remember what the angel, the first thing the angel said to Gideon? What was the first thing the angel said to Gideon? The Lord is what? With you. The Lord is with you. The first thing that angel wanted him to know, he did not believe at all. So, there it is. The Lord is with you. That's what he wanted him to know. He goes on to say in verse 15, Pardon me, Lord, Gideon replied. How in the world can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. So Gideon tried to, to argue his way out of what he was being told. And he said, you know, our tribe, we're the smallest tribe. We only got half of an inheritance when it got divvied up, you know. And he said, and, and I'm, the, I'm the least in my own family. Anybody guess which birth order Gideon was? He was the youngest, right? He was probably the youngest. And um, everybody who's not the youngest knows the youngest always gets it easiest, right? Can I have an amen to that one? No. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Right, why is that? Because the youngest, the parents, they've either they've figured it out or they're worn out, one or the other. And, and so... So the youngest kind of gets away with everything, right? And so Gideon's had the easy life. It hasn't been hard for Gideon. He's had the easy life. And he's like, I can't do anything hard or difficult. I'm the youngest, you know? My tribe's the smallest. And he tries to argue his way out because of that. But the angel doesn't let him out. The angel goes on to say this, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. 
You know, I love the fact that the angel never answers Gideon's arguments. Never says, well, you know, yeah, I know you're kind of the youngest, but that's okay. Never even addresses it. You know, I know your tribe doesn't have a lot. Never even addresses. He says, you know what? I want to be with you. I want to be with you. I want to be with you. He says it over and over and over again. And he says, you will strike down all of the Midianites. Remember, this was like a swarm. He could not see how big this enemy was. He said, you're going to wipe them all out completely. None of them will be left alive. He still had not resolved that question, is God with me? Still hadn't resolved that question. Um, and so what does Gideon do? What does he do? He says, if I found favor in your eyes, give me, give me a sign that's really you talking to me. And I looked at that, that it's really you talking to me. What is Gideon asking? You know, it's really you talking to me. He has no idea who's talking to him at this point. No idea. So he asked for a sign. You know, and sometimes in, in Christian circles and in people of faith, when, when God says, I want you to do something, and, and you feel like God's given you a nudge, he's providing an opportunity, you're like, I'm not really sure. I'd, I'd really like a sign, God. You think you could give me a sign? And we, and we kind of say this as almost like a badge of faith, like I'm going to trust God if God gives me a sign. We know a sign is actually a symbol of disbelief, a sign of a lack of faith. We're going to see that even more next week disbelief and lack of faith. God made it pretty clear what Gideon was supposed to do, didn't he? He said, I'm going to be with you, and you're going to go, and you're going to defeat the Midianites. And you're a mighty warrior. I believe in you. He's like, I don't know. I'm the smallest. They're going to beat me. You know, it's not going to work. You think you can give me a sign? You know, it's, a, it's not a picture of belief. It's a picture of disbelief. And for some of you, when God gives you a nudge and God says, I want you to take a step of faith, you're willing to say, okay, God, you just take a running leap into whatever it is God puts out there for you. But for others of you, when God says, I want you to take this step of faith, you're like, yeah, I'm not really sure, God. I don't know if that's going to work. You think you could give me a sign, God? Maybe this next person that calls me on the phone will pray with me and that'll be my sign. And God's like, oh, do I have to give them more? You know? And so maybe for some of you, God's given you a nudge and says, I want you to take a step of faith. I want you to trust me. Because I am going to be with you. God says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. If you are one of my own. And so when God gives you that nudge, I want to challenge you to take that step of faith. But Gideon did not have the courage to do that. So he asked for a sign. So what does Gideon do? He says to the angel, he says, don't go away. I want to bring back an offering and I'm going to give it to you. And the Lord said, the angel said, okay, I'll wait. So what does Gideon do? He says, if now I've found, excuse me, let me keep going there. Um, God's grace shows up when our lack of faith is the greatest. When our lack of faith is strongest, that's when God's grace shows up. So what did Gideon do? He went inside, prepared a young goat, had an ephah of flour, made bread without yeast, putting the meat in the basket and its broth in a pot. He brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. Now, Gideon didn't just say, I'm going to go get you a snack. It's not what Gideon said. Gideon actually made a full-course meal. That's what he made. And, uh, you know, he had to go slaughter a goat and cook a goat over an open spit. He took an ephah of flour, which is half a bushel, and he made bread. That's an awful lot of bread. I don't know much about making bread, but that's got to be an awful lot of bread. I mean, he brought enough for a whole army of people out there, and he brought it out to him. And so he brings all the food out, and this is what the angel says. 
take the meat and the bread, put them on this rock, and pour out the broth. So he soaks the meat and he soaks the bread. And then look what happens in the next verse. The angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of the staff. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and bread, and the angel of the Lord disappeared. Now, if that happened on America's Got Talent, those judges would just be standing up applauding, wouldn't they? You know? I mean, kind of picture the scene with me. He's got this huge feast. He says, I want you to get it all out here. By the way, let's, let's kind of soak everything. And then he touches the rock underneath. The whole thing explodes and consumes it. And the angel disappears just like that. And what is Gideon's response after all of this happens? He realized that it was the angel of the Lord. It took him a long time to figure that out. A long time to figure that out. And he says, alas, sovereign Lord. Before he just say, pardon me, sir, excuse me, sir. Now he says, alas, sovereign Lord. He acknowledges that, that God is in charge of everything, even his own life. And he doesn't say it in this way. You know, I, I can't believe that was, that was God. I should have known. That's not what... Gideon's like, oh my goodness, that was the Lord. Because look what he says. He said, I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. You say, why is that so significant? Because they knew if they saw God face to face, they would die instantly. They would die instantly. Moses would go in and meet with God in the tent of meeting when they were wandering in the wilderness. And he would come out with a veil over his face because the glory of the Lord was so bright and so magnificent and powerful. People could not even look on Moses' face who had just been with the Lord. And Moses was the only one that was able to see the Lord face to face. And so he knew, seeing, when he realized who it was, he thought instantly he was going to die. But then somehow a voice comes to him after he realized those things. And it says this, peace, do not be afraid, you are not going to die. And I love that the angel of the, the, the voice of the Lord to him says this. It says, peace. Because the voice of the Lord doesn't say, it's all going to be okay. Never says that. God never says, it's all going to be okay. The voice of the Lord doesn't say, you're going to feel happy. You know, the voice of the Lord doesn't say, you're going to be problem free. The voice of the Lord just says, peace. It's a Hebrew word, Shalom. It means that in spite of everything going on around you, all the storms swirling around you, inside your spirit, inside of you, there is a settled contentment with where you are at. That is God's peace. That is God's peace. And then what does he say? He said, by the way, you're not going to die. You'll be good. You'll be good. And so what does Gideon do? Gideon then acts as he realizes this, who it is. He responds in worship. He built an altar and called it, the Lord is peace. You think, that's a pretty good story. Gideon kind of realized who the angel was, and that's a good story. But God wasn't finished with Gideon just yet. Because that night, look what God said to Gideon. He said, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole. Now, by the way, the second bull, the first bull, um, the second bull was the one that they kept for breeding purposes. That's what the second bull, that's the prize stock. That's who God told him to kill. Um, then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord on top of this height. Use the wood from the Asherah pole that you cut down. Offer the second bull as an offering. So Gideon took ten of his men and did as the Lord told him. 
because Gideon was a mighty warrior and not afraid? No, because Gideon was afraid of his family, and so he did it at night rather than in the daytime. In the morning when the people of the town got up, there was Baal's altar demolished with the Asherah pole beside it cut down the second bull sacrifice on the newly built altar. And I thought to myself, I thought, what's a good analogy for that? It would be kind of like your son coming to you and saying to you, you know, Dad, one of the things that I realized is that you know, the, this family cabin that our family has that everybody pays into and we all go and, and we spend a lot of time there, we, we do it on the weekends, we put a lot of money and effort and resources, it just seems like it's distracting us from really what God wants us to be as a family and wants us to do. So um, because I had financial access to it, I sold it and I gave all the money to the church. It would be kind of like that. It would be like one of your sons taking what you treasure the most your most valued commodity, and saying, I got rid of it and gave it to the church. That's literally what Gideon did. That's literally what he did. And I thought about this guy who could not even, didn't even have the courage to believe that God would be with him. Somehow, everything changed. Somehow, everything changed. Now, everybody in the town wasn't real thrilled about it because look what the town people said. They said, who did this? They investigated it and they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, did it. They demanded of Joash, bring out your son. He must die because he's broken down Baal's altar and cut down the... These people were furious. They were furious. Gideon went from thinking he was going to die because he saw the angel of God to now ready to be put to death by the people in the town, in the community. They wanted his head. And I think what happens in the next verse is very, very significant. Joash, Gideon's father, what did he say to the people? I can't believe my son did that. How irresponsible. Why would he do such a thing? I mean, dads, just think about it for a moment, your response when you find your tools left outside by your son who was using them to build something in the rain. Okay? or your fishing pole that was used to bend and shoot something across the yard, or your golf clubs because they got an angle on the end to dig a hole. You know, just try to think about something you really value that your kid just trashed. You know, that's literally what happened. This was the community place of worship. This was something, the, the second bull, that was their prized stock. That's what this was. And he just did something that would appear to be completely irrational and off the rails. And so what do you expect from the father? What do you expect from the father? You expect anger, rage, fury, you know, whatever. Add, add your list of what you expect from the father in that moment in time. But look at how this father responded to the hostile crowd. He said, are you going to plead Baal's cause are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him should be put to death. If Baal's really a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. He didn't accuse his son. He defended his son, and he accused the false god of being the fraud that he really was. And I just want to pause for a moment because we don't know much about this guy, Joash, at all. We really don't know hardly anything other than we know that he's Gideon's father and he builds this altar. That's all we know. So what brought about the change in Joash? Was he just trying to protect his son? Was he just trying to cover his son, for his son? There's a possibility that could have been the case. 
But I think what happens is when God challenges you to take a step of faith, and God says, I want you to listen to my voice and I want you to follow me, even if you don't know where that's going or how it's going to solve your problems, it impacts people around you. It impacts people around you. Dads and moms, when God gives you a nudge and says, I want you to take a step of faith, it impacts each other. It impacts your kids. It can even impact your own parents. And most of you that struggle in your relationship with your own parents don't believe that they could ever change. But the faith of one man caused a response totally unexpected by this father to the rest of the people in that community. And he not only stood up for his son, but he called out the false god that he had led his family and his whole community to worship. That's the kind of impact that one step of faith, and this is just the first story in a series of stories we're going to look at in the life of Gideon. The first story in a series of stories that takes place. So because Gideon broke down Baal's altar, they gave them the name Jerob Baal that day, saying, let Baal contend with him. You know, something changed in this guy when he realized God was with him. When he went from believing he was on his own, that God wasn't anywhere around, to believe in God was with him. Something changed, and he had the courage to take a step of faith that he could not do before. And suddenly what seemed impossible to stand up against, to fight against the Midianites, suddenly became a possibility. He still had no idea how he was going to do it. I mean, he doesn't have an army. He's not a military leader. And we're going to see next week this whole idea of the impossible becoming possible as we continue our looking at the story of Gideon. But I hope you get a glimpse today that when you believe that God is with you, when you believe His presence will never leave you, what you never thought was possible for you to do suddenly becomes possible. You see, when God is with you, you can love someone who is unlovable. When God is with you, you can start to mend a broken relationship. When God is with you, you can treat a spouse with love and honor, even if it doesn't come back to you. When God is with you, you can live out your faith in work in, at work in spite of the pressures to conform or violate your own personal ethics. When God is with you, you can choose to walk away from the sexual temptations of pornography or being sexually active. When God is with you, you can face the pain of your past and tackle what seems impossible because when God is with you, what seems impossible suddenly becomes possible. And so what seems impossible in your life today? What seems impossible in your life today? I don't know about you, but I don't have to think real hard and long about this. Um... For me, it often circles around relationships. I would imagine for a large portion of the room, that's the case. Maybe it's financial. Maybe it's emotional and personal with some struggles you're battling through. But I hope you walk out today with this reminder and renewed confidence that if God is with you, 
what seems to be impossible suddenly, surprisingly, becomes what is possible. My daughter didn't think she was going to be able to finish that race that day. I didn't know if she would be able to either. But I told her I was going to be with her every step of the way. And I was. I stayed right by her shoulder every step of the way, encouraging her, telling her she could do it, telling her she was going to make it, telling her we were getting closer. And um, we did. We made it through that race. She finished the race. Um, and I think a big part of that was because I was there with her. And so as you think about what seems impossible in your life today, if God is with you, it suddenly becomes very possible. Imagine what God could do in your life if you had the courage to take a step of faith and do what seemed impossible. Imagine how the impact that could have in your family. Imagine the impact that that could have in your job. Imagine the impact that could have in our faith community. Imagine, that could have, imagine the impact that could have in the Cocalco School District and the surrounding areas. If there were people, if there were men and women and students that lived with this confident belief that God is with me, and even though I don't know how the problem is going to be solved, I'm going to take a step of faith, the next step of faith God has for me, believing that the impossible suddenly becomes possible. As we close this morning, I want to invite you just to take a moment and... Just meet with God, talk with God about what seems impossible in your life today. God, often in life when things seem hard or difficult or confusing, um, I know I often find myself wanting a way, a plan, and wanting lots of steps, and not just one step, God. And it can be real easy to forget that you are with me. God, I don't know why it's so easy for us to lose sight of that. But I pray this morning as we've sat for just a, few, just a few moments and reflected on the things that seem impossible in our lives, that um, the reality of your presence with us gives us courage and gives us hope. And God, whatever that challenge is that you have us facing today and, and this week, um, may the truth of your presence become real. When it, when it became real in Gideon's life, everything changed. Even though he was still fearful, it didn't take away his fear. He still did what God asked him to do, even though he was afraid. And so God, knowing you're with us isn't going to take away all of our fear. It might knock it down a notch or two. But God, I pray that it gives us the courage to live out our faith. Help us to do that, 